Podcast number 187. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, your premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America, helping people grow. Tractor Zoom delivering insights and dry shod boots, the official work boot of the Moving Iron Podcast. Uh, it's this week. Uh, lucky to have uh, Rich Possum pop back in and talk about what he sees happening out in the economy. And uh, it's always a pleasure to have him on. Rich, how you doing, bud? Good. Good deal, man. Well, plenty of stuff to talk about. There's all kinds of things going on all over the place. I think what I want to start with first is um, start with a little bit of the U.S. economy here and what we see happening. There has been a few governors that that ran out real quick and opened back up some economies, and now they're um, in Florida and Texas and areas like that where now they're they're starting to see a, a kind of a climb back again of the coronavirus cases that are popping up, but they're popping up in a completely different segment than what we saw uh, the first time around, and there's not been as many hospitalizations, I guess, is what is probably what the word I would use there uh, as as kind of as we see things move forward. I guess looking at the economy now from 60 days ago, Rich, what do you see happening and, and kind of what, what are your, some of your models talk, showing you right now? Yeah, I'm uh, back in March, and you know, I called a bottom in the stock market, but I said, you know, we could be at least six months away for a bottom in the economy, and worked well in the stock market, called the bottom within two days, and uh, boy, some of those uh, trades related to that are up like 40 to 60 percent, so I'm very pleased at how that all worked, especially when the stock market is uh, still down on the S&P 500 for the year. But I, uh, on the economy, about a month ago, I called some bottoms and a few indicators in the bo- uh, for the economy. But all those indicators suggest is the pace of decline, erosion in this country is just slowing. So it's warning the economy is now getting close to, to bottoming out. But I, gosh, the models are showing that things like the stock market and some of these indicators could just zigzag up and down all the way in the next year. And for the stock market, it's even got a slightly lower bias to it and uh it, it just concerns me that you know, the stock market is just too optimistic of, of winning on this virus thing and the economy coming back uh, some people have just been damaged and, and business going bankrupt and every day i'm hearing well the, the bankruptcy number projection is raised again and again and i'm thinking you know it's not going to be a v bottom where yeah it was a terrible time for a few months and within a few months everything was grand and and we just go on our way. I think this is going to take quite a while. And for the very long-term stuff for, for several years now, or ever since 2015, I said, you know, we should have an economic problem here, 2018 to 2021. So 2021 is the deadline year to put a bottom in for the economy and fix it. And I can see the th- same thing in the global economies. There, It's just not there for a robust turnaround. I, I think it's going to take quite a while. And uh, I even saw some statistics over the weekend here where some think that there's going to be nearly 30 million more homeless people just because they can't pay their rent, they can't pay their mortgages, whatever. Uh, So there could be some very discouraging news coming down uh, the road here at us, and I I don't think the stock market fully appreciates that. Maybe maybe it just doesn't care. I 
I think they can focus on, hey, as long as somebody's working and the lights are on, well, then that's good, you know. But you can just see that um, this this could take quite a while to work out of this, and it's got me nervous with this uh, virus coming back, which you can argue it never left in the sense that we're still in the first wave. Others are saying, no, it backed off, and now it surged, so now you're in your second wave. But uh, I don't know. I think this may well be just the first wave, and the true second wave may be a few months more down the road. So uh, it's really got me concerned as I see the cases blowing up in Florida and Texas. And I recall about a month to two months ago, someone in Florida tweeted how Florida was doing so much better, and their governor was so much better than your governor. And I thought, oh, man, you're not comparing that properly. And I was so close to just tweeting and telling them how they had to rethink no, he didn't. I let it go. And and then here we are today. That the virus is, uh, I mean, that's now, New York is looking so much better than Florida. Yep. It's just blowing up on And, yep. you know, and, and then you can also compare the southern states to the northern states. And then uh, there's a map that actually says, okay, warmer states, colder states. Because in the beginning of this, back in February, March, the discussion was, well, it's, a, it's actually a cold virus. It doesn't like the warmth. Well, there's no evidence of that today because the whole country has been knocking out some records here at times and the virus is, is doing even better. And so some people are already saying, well, it's already adjusted. And that's that's what I've been hearing all along is this particular virus is just very good at adapting. And and then, of course, opening the economy. Yes, I think everyone in the country assumed, well, you know, you're, you're going to fire up the virus again. You know, we're going to have more cases, but we'll get through this. That's just a natural thing. And, but boy, you look at the surge of this, though, and you're wondering, you know, did we just make a grand mistake here of moving way too fast? And that's what the health officials are concerned is that's exactly what's happened. And so some are already backing off California, shutting down bars and various types of stores, and Apple has shut down all their stores in California, I think. Uh, Texas is doing the same thing now. Uh, I don't recall in Florida, but um, now there's several states saying, well, we're probably going to have to shut things back again. So, again, I'm not I'm convinced that the, these markets really aren't fully appreciating this, this lingering problem here. And we can have uh, a rough economy for months yet. Um, I think it's going to bottom the first quarter of next year, but uh, I'll just play it safe and say hey, all these years, the model said the latest for can bottom is, is 2021, and I should leave it at that. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a tough struggle. And uh, even though I've been right on the stock market, I kind of feel like I shouldn't have been that right. I shouldn't have been that profitable. Uh, I can't explain I'm being that bullish. I'm just glad the model is on top of it and kept me in there and kept me on the right track because, uh, boy, there's some big players out there, billionaire-type traders who uh, some of them have even retired. They, they totally blew it on the way down and they blew it on the way up and they just said, we haven't seen anything like this in our lifetime. Get too old, time to quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, and it just goes to show you, you know, if you feel like some days you just can't invest and compete with the big boys, uh, you can you can do pretty good with the right methods and just a couple of computers versus those that have 100 computers and 50 analysts and $10 billion, you know. it's uh, But uh, so moving forward on the economy, uh, uh, let's put it this way, uh, the government, or I should, I should say the Federal Reserve, has, of course, pumped in a lot of money, but the Treasury has printed money. The government's basically printing money or taking the money from Treasury and Fed and pumping it out there. And uh, I just saw some numbers here on the M2 money supply. And back in 1980, the supply of uh, that type of money uh, was $2 trillion. 
1980. As of March, it was 15.6 trillion. And then just from March into May, it jumped to 18.4 trillion. So if you looked at a chart, it's just exploding. It's the highest on record going back to 1980. So just a huge amount of money supply. Well, you then go over on the personal savings side, which I'm kind of baffled in the sense that for so many people losing their jobs, and yes, they're getting unemployment better than they would normally get for unemployment. Some of them are doing better than if they were still on the job. Same time, I would think at least the poor and the lower to mid-middle class really wouldn't have money to pump in the savings at all. They're probably spending savings. And uh, at any rate, personal savings uh, were 7.9% in January. That was the rate of how much they're saving. Jumped to 32% in uh, April. Um, and the last record was in 1975, 17%. So uh, almost double uh, the record here in, in the matter of a couple of months. And that record goes all the way back to 1960. So there's a large amount of money out there that, yes, someday is going to come into buying homes, uh, rebuilding businesses. It's going to come back into the stock market. And that's probably what some people are buying the stock market now, hoping to stay ahead of everybody else. And they're just in greed mode. But it also shows the shock to our economy right now. And I think people are thinking... Uh, you know, how, how large of a home do I really want? How fancy of a truck or car do I want? Uh, I think we're going to change our consumer attitude here for the next 12 months. Uh, boy, some think it's going to change it for several years. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, American people are amazing that uh, they can get over the bad times pretty quick and forget about it pretty quick. But I'm going to say there's a lot of people out there that as they get back to work, they're just not going to spend as much as they did. Yep. Uh, they're going to be concerned of the future. They're going to be wondering, is this virus coming back? Is it going to hit my family? Is it going to hit me again? Is it going to hit the country? I'm going to lose my job again. And uh, it's that's why I think we've got a slow haul here to improve the economy, which is what's making me also nervous in the stock market since uh, it has been so profitable. But yeah. I think they're ahead of themselves. It's, they're not looking that clever, in my opinion. Right. But granted, you know, looking out four or five, seven years and stuff, you know, we'll work through this. And uh, I must say I did some research of saying uh, there's been an old thought that normally the economy and stock market would do pretty good the year before an election. And they assume nobody wants to rock the boat, cause any problems for anybody. And you got to get the election out of the way. I must say when you can get an election near the times of these major long-term business cycle tops when it's time for recession, it is interesting how the recession can shove off to the year after. It's almost like nobody really wants to become too depressed or too bearish, too negative, pull back too much, and they kind of wait. Well, of course, the virus come in this time and made everything you know, so, so much severe than anybody was imagining. Um, so I doubt we're going to get it like a post-election slump, but we very well could that there could be something else going on there but what fascinated me more was it around the time of election when you can see the first four years of that major long-term cycle turning up that 100 percent of the time since 1930s the stock market was higher and the economy was already record large and doing well what this tells me is since that the republicans and democrats in terms of being in the white house and, and even in congress they really take turns. It's about 50-50. It's like there is no trend of since 1930s that it was mostly Democrat or mostly Republican. It's like everybody just takes turns and it just kind of negates one another. It's all equal. 
and yet was weird. So that what that tells me is during that four years that everything did so well, it didn't matter who was in the White House, didn't matter who was running Congress. And I fully understand that. Some people say they don't get it because they assume politics are so important and government policy is so important. But you have to remember 80% of our economy or more is consumers and businesses, and most of that is consumers. So what it's telling me is the consumer and business people for that first four years, whoever's getting elected, they're going to be optimistic. They're going to be business no matter who gets elected. Now, you can make an argument that the economy doesn't do as well maybe under one type of president because people just didn't like it. Okay? Right. So but to me, the whole political thing doesn't make or destroy the country or the economy. All it does is add to or take away. So I can't tell you who gets elected and how good things are going to be in the next four years. What I am telling you, it doesn't matter who's going to get elected. Time is going to move forward. Things are going to be better four years out. How good? I don't know yet. You know, we got a long ways to go for that. But uh, it does tell me we will get through this and it'll be okay. But I am telling you, we could have some problems all the way in the next year. And uh, I realize right at the moment the commodity side is saying, well, you know, our prices are already low and it doesn't look like the economy is hurting us any. And yes, uh, you know, majority of the population is living and they're getting some food somehow and this and that. And so it's really kind of creating a floor price in commodities. But the key is if the economy's not going to get better for another 12 months, um, to me, it limits how much upside you can have, even if you have a little bit of a supply problem in these commodities. And so even if we get just a little bit of a crap problem, I don't think it's going to have the upside it once did. Now, if you get a major crap problem, that's a different story. Uh, we could still have a sizable up move. Um, something else I want to point out in the economy is all this money printing has certainly changed some attitudes of some people in terms of inflation. And many years ago, I said, by the time we get somewhere in those late 2010s, early 2020s, we ought to see some kind of a bottom inflation and interest rates. Um, and for inflation, I thought it might come in as early as 2008, 2009 off of that uh, financial crisis that have put a bottom in there. And the thing is, though, this past week, especially this weekend, I saw several articles of various uh, billionaire-type hedge fund managers, some major um, analytical firms, some of them kind of private and, and small, but very well-respected, a big following. Others, such as major banks like Society General, uh, one of their analysts just came out over the weekend. And this particular group of analysts really were thinking disinflation, deflation, nothing would get more expensive for at least another 10 years, maybe 20, and interest rates would remain dirt cheap. And so they were also bullish to stock market saying, you never will stop the market. It'll just keep going up because it's the only place to put your money. And uh, it's interesting uh, how many were in these articles here in the past uh, two to seven days here of um, changing their mind, just totally trashing their 10, 20-year forecast i mean they just dumped them and saying we've just printed way too much money and we're going to get inflation now the thing is it seems like no one knows just what path are we taking for this inflation is it going to start immediately and just keep on going and they i think some feel like you're going to get a shock in just the next two to three years uh, one of them even said four percent inflation by uh 2021 and right today, we're probably at 0% with the economic <laughs> recession. So, um, or at least uh, no more one or something like that. And I forget the number the US, our Fed is following. But uh, that that's a big, big jump to have in that short period of time. And, and, and okay, from my, 
Yeah. What's that? Okay, so let's put that in perspective. Because I was your answer. Your your answer. My next question. I was going to ask you about interest rates. What's that look like? Because I I agree. I mean, they've pumped six trillion dollars. Uh, in this coronavirus stimulus package and, and plus every other thing they've done up to this point, there's a there's a ton of ton of money out there. I mean, so if you're if you're analysts that you're reading saying you know we're at zero percent now and we're going to go up to four percent, give me an idea what that looks like for interest rates. Like right now, uh, I think you can get a thirty year fixed mortgage for like two point eight seven five or something like that percent interest. That's hardly anything. We're we're throwing around. Yeah, that, Three quarter that's, of a percent interest. That's the tricky years. thing. If we had had inflation for past couple of years and then suddenly get a jump, I would say interest rates are going to increase by 50% uh, fairly soon. Since we've had such a low inflation and low interest rate environment and the economic recession, and even investors are not buying bank stocks, they're just concerned of the, of the future. I doubt interest rates would immediately move by a huge amount, but they should move up. And I do think we're putting in a super cycle of interest rates. If it doesn't occur, it may occur as soon as this month even. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the evidence of it yet. I'm not calling it. But it should also bottom no later than next year, right along with the economy and, and what I'm seeing inflation. I think for me, uh, if... I, I kind of feel like 10 years from now, or even, it may even take 15, 20 years, we could see something like 5% inflation, 6% inflation. I anticipate interest rates of 4 to 6%, and I'm talking the 10-year note that is, that is um, you know, zero. Or lot, it's under zero, or I, I'm sorry, 0.7%. Uh, um, so, you know, to make a move, we're talking four or five times what the current rate is today. But I think in terms of people think back in 1980 when we had inflation of 10, 12%, interest rates hit 17, 20%, something like that. Um, I'm not seeing that. And this type of cyclical trend that I'm using is saying any real high interest rate and high inflation is probably 15 to 25 years away. And then that should be your highest. And then we're going to start to cycle all over again, start working rates lower. So to hear someone say 4% in a matter of just a year or two, um, I don't think you're going to take the 10-year note to 4% from 0.7, and if so, it's going to clobber the economy. That's why I just don't think things can work out that way. So I think it'll be a heck of a lag compared to the uh, to that. But nevertheless, if you take a, oh, my, what, a mortgage rate of, say, 3.5%, uh, and, and you're going to pump inflation to 4%, you know, I would say that's going to put the 30-year back to 4.5%. percent uh-huh. But the thing is, the longer this takes, pretty soon just going from 4% to 5% might make an exponential move in that interest rate, and suddenly you're at 6%. So you're going to get the, the higher the interest rate, pretty soon the, I'm sorry, higher the inflation, the interest rate is going to start out slowly lagging, and then it's just going to start speeding up. And when you start getting into that late inflation cycle, then you can actually see interest rates moving higher, especially if the Fed decides to kill inflation, then they'll actually force the interest rates higher, just like Paul Volcker did in 1980. Right. So you're saying there, there could be a point in the near future that could be some, like a, like a catalyst that could, could send the, the market into a bit of a, a, I don't know, hyperinflation is not the word to use, but... Yeah, yeah, hyperinflation would come in towards the end of it. As far as the process, 
even though I'm, I'm, I'm against this analyst saying 4% in 2021, I don't see that kind of shock, but I fully see these hedge funds, some of them that I never, I didn't think I'd ever seen in my lifetime, but inflation ever again. And here they're changing their tune and they're starting to use a little dab of Bitcoin. Like one of them says he's only going to have 1% of his portfolio in Bitcoin, but it's an inflationary hedge. And then he's going to have a few more percent in gold. Like he's been a gold guy for many years anyways. So he's got a fair amount of gold there as inflation hedge too. And uh, so you can see it. The, the people have woke up to, hey, we're looking at one of the bigger changes in our lifetime of flipping back to what we haven't seen in 30 years. Okay. And uh, so I, I, I feel it feels like some just do expect a sudden surge here in a very short period of time. And all I can say, if it occurs, it's going to correct by 50% quickly. And because they'll just throw the economy into reverse. And next thing you know, you bring your inflation back down, you bring your interest rates back down. And then you might get another surge. And we could have several surges over the next 15, 25 years. And it's kind of like walking up the stairs. Uh, you snap it up, you bring it down some, you snap it up again. And so for the really high interest rates, I think they're a long ways off. Now, is there, you know, I can't guarantee it. Maybe something I don't understand that you can just have a huge explosion. And, and then it comes all the way back down. And then later it goes back up again to prove me right way out. But I would think, I don't know what would cause that right now to have a gigantic surge in inflation and interest rates. It would be like the asteroid have to hit the planet, I think. Right. <laughs> so, but the point is, you can get these little surges here that can upset people. You know, first, be, some will be happy and they made some money out of it. And then pretty soon they'll say, but wait a minute, this higher interest rate now costs my business. It costs people. It's going to hurt the economy. And everybody goes the other way. And I'm sure the Fed's going to be very careful how to do it. And it's a, it's a real tricky thing. I know some people just hate the Fed, but and they think the Fed screws up every time. But it's a real tricky way of managing things and trying to make sure you raise interest rates enough to keep up with the growing economy inflation, get them high enough to give it a cushion the next time you have a recession, and yet not raise them too much to scare people. And frankly, I look at today's interest rates and I'm saying, well, who cares if it goes from zero to four percent? That means nothing to me because I'm, I'm old enough to still remember the eight to 12 to 17 percent interest rates. Right. But the point is, when your business is fine tuned, everything and man, Wall Street is so fine tuned. They worry about a hundredth of a percent, you know. You know, if you stop thinking about, okay, well, gee whiz, if it just went from 1% to 4%, my gosh, you know, 300% increase in interest rates. When really, it's still just 4%. doesn't sound that much to me. But the point is, it means a lot to someone, right? And uh, so you can get these shocks where it really doesn't take as much as it should uh, to cause a problem uh, with the flow of how we manage money. And uh, so, yeah, I, again, I don't want to get too excited here that we got a big, big up move coming in inflation because I'm sure the commodities people think, oh, yeah, boy, if you give us a nice jump in inflation here in just the next two, three years, we're going to make some money. To me, I think the whole thing's going to be a more long, drawn-out process. But we could kick it off with a jump at first, then settle down, calm down, and then something else later uh, moves in. So all I can say is I was already bullish looking for this kind of bottom, and now they're giving me the money printing, and, yeah, I'm now even more confident. And now I'm seeing some big guys that, like I said, I didn't really expect them to turn this way so abruptly, but it's because they're looking at so much money out there. Yep. And, uh, and but, you know, again, for those on the body side looking for this higher inflation, well, you also got to get the economy back on its feet. And we got a ways to go. I mean, you got minus 
5% GDP. Well, that doesn't occur very often. It's like once a decade and sometimes uh, less than that, less frequent than that. And so we've got to get that back to at least 1% GDP to say, hey, we truly are growing the economy. And I wouldn't be surprised. There'll be, you won't see the average, where I want to put this, the average of the population really become comfortable with the economy until it's already record large. It has to fully recover and then some, and that could be a couple years away yet uh, to get this economy back to record large. And then, if you have inflation, then I think people get even more excited. So, uh, at least bringing in uh, gold, some people, because I don't trade or invest in gold myself, but I do follow and I've, and I've been asked by my followers here on my podcast to, to, to talk more of it. And, and boy, the model did a fantastic job in the last 30 days. It just said, buy it. It's heading higher. And it's just marched up really, really well. Um, for a long-term target, I, uh, I read someone else, a billionaire uh, hedge fund trader came out and said he's targeting $2,400. I read his monthly newsletter to his investors and he, uh, it was well done. They really did their research, and he really looked at Bitcoin. He looked at inflation-adjusted bonds and debt and gold, and uh, he uh, he came up at $2,400, and that's close enough to what I've been thinking, too. Again, for all I know, it could take many years to do that. But on the other hand, with all this money pumping, if Wall Street, if investors just get excited saying, hey, uh, even if it does, even if rich persons right, it's going to take twenty years to get the highest inflation. I want gold now, <laughs> just get it bought. Yeah. And so I wouldn't rule out. Yeah, gold could have a very impressive uh, bull market without even having the inflation to back it up quite yet. And and some of these big uh, Ray Dalio there with his hundred billion dollars, that's how they're approaching this. Is yeah, they're still in the stock market, and but even when they're bullish, they're they're cautious and they. Um, they own gold, and they basically want diversification, and they're looking at this inflation thing. They, they think it's turning as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing people now had a kind of narrow focus where it might just be stocks, and that's it. Now they're, over time, they've been adding the bonds because they were scared of this recession, and now they're kind of saying, well, how many bonds do I really want to own when the interest rate's at zero? Uh, you know, pretty soon, if it goes to minus zero, I'm going to be paying the person that sold me my bonds instead of me making money, right? Right. So, uh, so you can just see they're looking at other things and they're looking into the things like Bitcoin and they're looking definitely gold. And uh, I think gold's probably got some upside for a while. The problem I've always found with gold is it could turn sideways for quite a while and then you get your next up move, things like that. So the money's there and to drive the inflation, but I think. I think anybody, I think everybody's just got to realize you really need the economy back on its feet to, to really make that work, and we're not there yet. Yep. Okay, so let's take a look at <clears throat> some of the weather events that we see around right now. So we're in most of the uh, United States is in, is in a pretty good hot dry spell right now. Um, they get some rains and stuff in certain areas. You've got the desert locusts in northern Africa and southern Asia, India, and you've got just this, this torrential rain pattern that we see in China right now that's affecting some of their key growing areas, especially when it comes to soybeans. And you got the, the Three Gorge Dam, which is uh, like three meters from going over, and it's one of the largest dams uh, in, in, the, uh, in the world. And you know they're worried about it breaking and killing half a million people or something like that. 
So, I mean, I guess you take a look at all these things going on. What's your thought now on looking at the commodity market and just some of the pressure we're seeing from weather and how that could drive prices? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting the developments here in just the, really the last 30 days, in my opinion, uh, because for a few years now, my, one of my models called the C model has been saying, you better look for a crop problem 2021, 2024, high probability. Uh, and... And it seemed like, boy, the world just, you'd have a problem, yet world wound up growing a record amount. And so ending stocks were high, and you just couldn't seem to get away from the bearish information. But things have changed around the world where you can see that I'm not convinced this that we have a crop problem this year in the U.S., but it wouldn't surprise me you have problems around the world. And I just wonder if this is all a hint of building towards that problem in 2021 to 2024, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, currently I am targeting 2021 and 2023, so I'm trying to narrow the range down, but that could change it at any moment, and it could be one year, it could be three years, it could be two years, it, you know, whatever fits within four years. It won't be four years of crop bombs. I don't think I've ever noticed anything like that, uh, but uh, it does seem like we're building that way. So, but I kind of felt at first that. For the traders in this country, they're not going to get too excited for a while. They, they've been burned too many times the past, uh, ever since the 2012 drought of any kind of a crop problem. So they've been cautious and they are nervous of the global economies, the virus, the demand. They're very nervous, of course, over Hong Kong, China, U.S. and those issues. Uh, so they just don't want to get bulled up. These funds that have been bearish here, like in corn, huge amounts, uh, record large or something like that. Uh, they aren't today, probably, because they've backed off here in the, in the recent days. But the thing is, they, they really wanted to play all the scenarios added together, saying, gosh, you've got to give me, give me a seriously bullish move to get bullish. So all they're really doing is trying to get out of the way of any of these bounces off weather. And the same thing with the USDA report here a few days ago, um, not not Friday, but the, the one at the end of June on yep. the acreage. Yep. And, Sure, they bought, but it was mostly short covering, you know. I mean, I'm sure some flipped along immediately, but as a group, and they're just trying to cover their shorts, trying to lose as little as possible, maybe make a little bit on a very short-term basis, and all they really want to do is just sell it at a higher price and start over because they just don't see much of a future for a very long time, and they just want to keep playing it. And uh, But obviously, if we truly could get some serious weather here this uh this summer, it might make a difference, but I, today, I look at this hot and dry that's coming here over the next couple of weeks, and uh, just uh, tonight, the market's down even lower from uh, Friday's drop after that US, after the USDA report, so they're not that concerned yet. I, I think what they're saying is, well, gee, if we're going to get that hot a couple of weeks ago, why did we cool off this weekend? And it, it surprised me how well we, we cooled off to 82 the other night and uh, 62 in the morning, you know, and if you can keep it at under 72 uh, at night, that pretty much counters whatever you did during the day. The, at least the corn crop's going to do pretty good. And that brings me to my critical point temperature model because my cycle model and the C model and some of these other models, the R model, that's all pre-growing season. It's, it's not meant to study what is corn doing right today in the field. It's meant to warn you of what's coming weather-wise that can cause a problem and, and these models literally label every single fluctuation in yield and production doesn't work in acreage but it works fantastic in yield and production labels every single one of them catalogs them i know how many times during a decade during a century corn 
yield is going to move up and down. It's like it's got its own formula, its own code, and it's just amazing to me. Most people miss it. Most of the analysts, they, they don't see it. Um, so with that, I can then try to figure out when is you're going to get the most important impact out of that, right? And that's what's coming up here in a few years. But this, um, this uh, critical point temperature model, is the model used during the growing season and it looks at just june it looks at june july august temperatures and it's just an average 24-hour temperature and i've discovered a certain temperature that when it goes even two tenths of a degree above that temperature yield falls apart and it can be severe it can be a few bushel an acre but it tells you temperature is more important precipitation so when you see that happen with temperature, then you got to start paying more attention to precipitation because that can add to it or help limit the decline in the yield. And this model has worked 100% of the time since 2000. So very pleased to how that works. Now, here's sort of a flaw or a drawback on it. It uses all the way through the end of August for temperature. Well, the market's not going to wait that long to figure out whether you've got a good crap or not. And so you're kind of forced starting here at mid-July, I'm going to start saying, okay, what's the two-week forecast? And then I'm going to gamble on another two or four weeks that we're going to have that kind of trend. I'm going to look at what it does normally over the past 10 years or something like that and get a handle on how is that temperature going for summer. And so you never get the exact number until summer is over, unfortunately. Like I say, you got to you got to take a chance on doing something early next. So I fully get why most people would say, okay, I'll keep an eye on that model, but it's more important to watch crop condition. It's more important to just watch the weather news. Yes, you got to do those things. But this year, I'm not going to follow my USDA temperature model, which last year was like in two-tenths of a bushel USDA. I mean, it pretty much nailed it. But this year, I'm so bogged down with all this economy stuff, macro stuff, the climate stuff, and I'm preparing for this weather problem in the next few years. And then I was hopeful some of my affiliates were going to run the model. Well, they're working on the same thing I am. What's up with this inflation? What's up with the economy and virus? And so we've just decided, you know what, if we look how we normally trade a market, we don't need to predict USDA. We're fine. We're just waiting on USDA numbers because we're probably already going to trade it correctly going into the report anyway. So just go with it, right? Uh, so I won't be following that, but I'll certainly pay attention watching Twitter of what others are coming up with. Uh, I won't be following the crop condition model either. I think some have a little better model than I on that, and I'll be following what they have. But I will keep track of uh, how these average temperatures are going, and it really does boil down to not just how hot it is during the day, but does it cool down enough uh, so that the, the corn can recover during the night. It actually does counter these, these mm -hmm. hot temps. And granted, the latest hybrids can take it a little more in heat, but i got to warn you, uh, this research going back a hard ever since 1865 on, on corn yield versus prices versus all this modeling. If it's time for a 20% drop in yield, the best you can hope for technology of saving your crap is you're going to drop only 18% yield. Okay, uh, it does not work as well as advertised. But if it's a yield's only going to drop 1%, maybe 2%, it is possible technology can counter that entire amount, and you see yield was unchanged uh, for that year. Where technology works the best is when we get good weather, it can make a, a record yield better than you would expect from good weather. And so, boy, if you get the perfect weather, <laughs> who knows how high yield could be, you know? Right. Yep. So that's how you want to approach technology with this is don't 
don't buy into the idea it's going to protect us from a drought. If we're going to have a drought, that yield's going down. That's all there is to it. Um, so at any rate, yeah, I'm watching the weather like everybody else. And, and yeah, late last week I got excited off the uh, temperature forecast. And, oh, boy, they're going to hold this, uh, this price up. And uh, I said if it goes over a certain price level, um, we better be bullish because my model had just turned short-term bearish ahead of the report. And son of a gun, uh, <laughs> it came within two cents or something like that. Rolled over, didn't give the true signal. I personally felt bullish anyways. And uh, so my model is actually a little smarter than myself uh, late last week. And uh, and so what's occurring right now tonight with the lower prices, the model is already saying, well, that's what you should have done. And I think the problem is people don't trust this, this weather, which may be a sign in the next few years, if they keep that attitude, that's where your big bullish surprise is going to come in as they were bullish too long and got the bad crap problem and then prices just soar, you know. Yep. Um, people have been trained, you know, the nature and yields and the prices have trained them for five to seven years now that uh, maybe we'll never have a crap problem again. Well, if you really study your history, you know that's not the case. You know, it's, it's coming, <laughs> but... Uh, but I'm not convinced it's coming to this year, and I certainly have some farmer friends who are saying, oh, we got to have it. Please, please, it's got to have it. And, and some of are, some are uh, they, they think it is coming. But I'm not seeing the evidence there yet, and you can see the market's not feeling that way yet. And even though, yeah, China bought a bunch of corn from us, uh, and they bought the beans, you can just see they're just trying to keep up with that phase one uh, deal. And I don't think they're really doing anything extra. And I think the smart market is currently smart enough to do that. And so, you know, the bottom line is the market is really saying, the only way to get bold up is you got to give me some serious proof. Otherwise, I'm selling rallies all the time is, is what the market is is thinking. And and someday that's going to trap them. They'll, they'll be wrong for that attitude. But right today, they're, they're probably right. My long-term business cycle in corn, wheat, soybeans, especially corn and soybeans, I really shouldn't bottom to harvest. But I will say, you look over there at China, I mean, that's some massive flooding, and there's even stories that if that dam ever breaks, they won't be building another dam for a long time. Everybody's going to be very cautious, rethink, restudy. Um, to me, where that area is with that river, to me, that's not such a big thing as for grains, really, uh, and with that dam. But like Casey, you, you and I talked before the show here, you know, there's, there's discussion there that you know, the soybean, some of the soybeaners are, are wet. And uh, I don't think they're wet in the real northern areas where it's really a bit more corn, but also soybeans. Um, so I don't know where to go. That's something to monitor uh, where they could have to import more. And my gosh, they've already been taking, I mean, Brazil has just been pumping the beans to China, something wicked here. <laughs> yeah. how, much more can they, how much more they can do. And, you know, seasonally, once we harvest our crop, normally the world says, okay, send the business to the U.S., and uh, I think China would do that. But can it really make these prices bold up? And I'll just go with the old rule of thumb I've used for 30 years now, and that is, uh, at least for the U.S. markets, they only understand one thing to be really bold up. It's got to be hot and dry. And so if it's flooding, they'll be bullish, but they won't be that bullish, you know. And I just look at everything going on with the economy, the virus, this trade war issue. Um, it just seems like we've got limited upside, even if it becomes bullish, at least for this year. But I will say, even though my model wants to be bearish in the harvest, which implies we ought to have still lower prices, the model is saying, this could, it could just go sideways now. That we're probably building a floor price. And that USDA report, the end of June, there with acreage, woke up the market, made it more sensitive to the weather, 
And I think it's a bit of evidence of trying to build a floor price. And, uh, and now you see what's going on in China and in Africa and you know, here. Um, yeah, I don't want to be... I don't want to be very bearish here. You know, I'm still going to kick out sell signals because I have to anyways. That's, that's what I do. And um, when we kick out another sell signal drains, people can use it or they can leave it. And I must say, when I see prices getting down towards the low end of the range for the year or the past few years, I don't like being locked in. So I want to be flexible. I'll sell it because, you know, it might drop a lot more than you think and come back so slowly your business gets hurt. Uh, if everything's negative and you get that next sell signal, you I feel like you got to do something, right? But should you be selling huge amounts when you get down here to start up the lows? You know, that's where I say I want to be flexible. I want to be able to get out of it. And that's where hedging is probably better than getting locked in on a contract unless you can buy out of that contract. Yep. So to me, that's my message on the, on the risk manager side on agriculture is uh, if you're a farmer, if you're some kind of terminal elevator and sitting on grain wondering you know, if these prices should be hedged, I think you still need to take signals. I think you still need to take care of near-term risk. But I think uh, I think it's just getting low enough where we have to think about a floor price and have to think about someday. <laughs> all the bearish news we've had all these years, it's obvious the big news someday is actually going to be bullish, not bearish. Yep. All right, so <clears throat> the inflation that we're seeing happening, that you're talking about coming, those kind of things, that will have effect on the value of the dollar. And as the value of the dollar starts to come down a little bit or gets weaker and, and we start seeing maybe some more demand uh, internationally for grains out of the U.S. Um, having the, I mean, do you, do you really see that happening to where the, the dollar weakens enough that we become ultra competitive on the uh, open market for exports? I do, but I don't know. I've been working extra hard on the dollar in these past couple of weeks and uh, I'm missing some data that I collected many years ago and did some super cycle research on it. And uh, I still got to dig it up. I filed it somewhere. I move around the country too much. Uh, <laughs> I, had three, I had three homes at one time. I'm jumping around between those homes. And I, I, um, it, it feels like there's a super cycle thing going on for the next 20 years. It's actually going to keep the dollar. I, I want to say the super cycle will be bearish, but the problem is the dollar can't be bearish that long. I mean, nothing works that way. Uh, currencies are basically in a very super long-term sideways range. It kind of looks like basis on corn or soybeans or something. And uh, so the, probably the correct thing to say is there's a chance over the next 20 years that keeps, there's a greater headwind to the dollar so that you just don't get super high values in the dollar. So I could see how that can help with this. I, I could see how that goes along with the inflation story for the next 20 years. But I, um, I got a lot more work on that before I get, really pushing the whole super cycle ideal on, on the dollar. But what I can tell you on uh, major long-term to minor long-term trends and latest business cycles is I really think the dollar should be at least lower than where we are today on around 2022 to 2024. And I would like to think we just put in a top in the dollar, but if we did, it's my third try at it because I started, I think, mid-last year and had two strikes against me, and now we're up for the third, and it looks like it, it could stick, that it's going to win. So there is a chance for dollars set back now all the way into 2022 to 2024, but when I say that, keep in mind, if it were to drop rather quickly, it's probably going to rebound some, move sideways a lot. The dollar spends most of its time actually going sideways. 
And so it could be a very slow process of grinding working lower. So I don't want to get people all bold up on the commodities saying, well, Rich Posen just said dollars going down. So uh, it's a really more of a process. And the problem is there's an alternate forecast saying you may have one more year of uh, the dollar being stable to higher, and then it's going to go lower. And the, right at the moment, the only way I'm coming up with higher is we must have some more serious economic issues here and maybe more global issues where people want to move their dollars into the U.S. even to try to try to support that. Um, so maybe we get some kind of panic there for some reason that they're going to use that as their safe haven and prop it up. But for the moment, I got my, I got my fingers crossed because I'm, I'm ready for some support in commodities and uh, I'd like to see our economy shift a little better because frankly I think a little inflation, a little better commodities actually helps the middle class and poor. It will hurt the rich on the inflation side. Um, but not enough to, to be a major issue, I don't think. So I want to be a bear here in the dollar, but I'm not entirely convinced. There could be something that goes wrong in the next 12 months, puts it right back up. There could be a gigantic spike off some shocking news here. Uh, something blows up with China, U.S., gets far more serious than the trade war. <clears throat> There's all kinds of things I suppose that could go wrong. But right at the moment, I'm rather optimistic of trying to be a bear here uh, in the U.S. dollar. And again, I think that I don't know if it supports inflation or whether it's just a sign the dollar trader is willing to jump on board this inflation and just as well, you know, we got to have lower dollar. You have to be careful of that because normally when inflation is going higher, interest rates are also going higher. Well, higher interest rates should actually support the dollar. So you're going to get, that's why I think you'll see more of a process. You'll get maybe a year or two lower dollar, then for some reason it's got to come up a year or two, and it may be because it refocuses on higher interest rates instead of higher inflation. And then another year or two, it's back to refocusing on, oh, higher inflation, you know. And I can, tend, I can tell you, dollar traders, even though they really work on uh, interest rates and the economy, they definitely watch commodities. They watch anything and everything that can influence interest rates, economy, dollar. So if they seriously think there's a move up in higher commodities, they'll actually start buying the dollar off of that. Now, that doesn't mean they can't be countered by something else, but you can just see these things trying to align here to create something where things can improve. And I guess what fascinates me is if we could just get the dollar down somewhat during that period of 2021 to 2024, and if we can get this economy to bottom by no later than next year so that the economy is actually doing fairly well in 2022 to 2024, and then you bring in the crop problem I'm talking about, to me, that just gives you more upside, right? And uh, could make it far more interesting for the bulls. That's that's definitely so. These are some of the things I'm watching. It's kind of like a chess game, and you can you can come up with like a hundred different bullish scenarios. You know, it drives you nuts sometimes. But and that's what I like with my core modeling. It kind of simplifies it, saying just go with the general idea. Okay, <laughs> we're going to get the checkmate, and it doesn't matter necessarily how we get there. Uh, so that's that's how I'm approaching it. But. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I want to favor the dollar, and I got I got some very interesting people that are totally on the opposite side that think uh, they think looking out ten years, yeah, the dollar's coming down, and it, it, it could actually crash. It could get trashed, is, is what they say. But for the interesting thing is they're kind of bullish for a few years on the dollar, and I don't care for what they're saying, and I have to keep checking base with them to make sure I understand it. But I, I, I can't go there. I'm, I think the dollar is going to be down by 2022. The question is, does it got to go up one more time and then down? And uh, we don't need a dramatically lower dollar. If you can give me 92 in the U.S. dollar index, I think we've got better exports. But here again, 
we're hung up on this idea we've got to fix the economy, not only in this country, but in other countries. So, but I think it's coming. I think the world, even though some some countries don't necessarily follow our, our business cycles here, most of the world through globalization is kind of coming to the same line of, of cycles. So I, I got a feeling next year, if it doesn't bottom this year, I think the whole world can bottom by next year. And if you could just pick up the global economy, bring the dollar down, and and the interesting thing is I still say a lower dollar actually helps the rest of the world, and I think it helps the middle class and, and poor. And uh, I, realize, I realize sometimes the dollar has to be up in order to help some countries, even in the commodity industry. But, boy, I go back 100 years worth of history. Best I can tell, there's been quite a few times you had a lower dollar, and you would think, all right, we're beating Brazil. And yet you would look at Brazil, and they're saying, well, gee, is Brazil sell, selling even more? But it also turned out we were selling even more. So it still worked <laughs> for us, you know? It's just, just an interesting scenario. And again, I think it just boils down to, uh, you know, these, the global economy kind of coming together. Yeah. So I'm really fascinated what's going to happen in the next few years here. And we just, uh, on the commodity side, agriculture side, and, and I think the stock market will still do well on uh, inflation. I realize you get it high enough, long enough, then you got to worry about the stock market. But I, I got a feeling we're going to hit an interesting window here where we can make money in several different things. And uh, the middle class is going to be breathing easier. Uh, doing a bit better and get some better paychecks and cent bonus and things like that. But you is it got to get through this uh, this virus. And I understand people's personal freedom and everything, but I wish they'd wear a mask and <laughs> try to make sure this thing doesn't blow blow up too more much more on this on this virus thing because uh, it, it feels like the Fed has pumped enough money and we put some floors here in the economy in the stock market, um, maybe even the bond market. Now we just need to get through this darn virus and get people back to work, and uh, I think it's going to click through. You know? yep, yep, Hopefully that yep. makes some sense. <laughs> no, yeah. <clears throat> makes good sense, man. So that's all good stuff, Rich. Talk about your podcast and where people can find that. Okay, it's called Critical Critical Point po- uh, Podcast. If you're just searching on the internet, just put in Critical Point and Rich Parson. But it, uh, the, web's the main website to go to, even though it's on Apple, Google, and many others, uh, just go to criticalpoint.podbean.com. And that's bean as in soybean. Criticalpoint.podbean.com. And then you can find me on Twitter at uh, uh, rich underscore Poston. Um, and so take a look at that and you can always direct messaging me on uh, Twitter if you have any problems with podcasts or anything like that but it's, it's going pretty small they put out several podcasts a week uh, some of them free some are under a subscription uh, but we look at grains and oil seeds and, uh, and then sometimes a little oil on the livestock and dairy but more likely to switch over to uh, some of the softs like cocoa sugar cotton and then we get into uh, economy a lot on the economy uh, climate and what's coming up for weather and crops. And then uh, stock market is, is literally updated daily just because it's it's been so volatile. And I give something anywhere from the short term all the way to the very long term in the in the stock market. And I invest my own money using this model and, uh, and do it also from short term to long term. So uh, I know it works because i got my own money in it and it can't be right all the time. But I've uh, come to the conclusion better than uh, most of them with this model. It's been a long, many years building it, and the model has discovered that 50% of what goes on in the market really doesn't relate to fundamentals as we know it. 
but it's actually still fundamental. And what it is is the people behind the scenes, mostly like in commodities, it's the demand side of things. When you look at the corn market, 50% of corn demand, domestic corn demand is feed food. And if you look at that, there's very little reporting on what's going on. Uh, and there's no requirements, it's infrequent, and everybody's basically guessing. And what I've done through this modeling is I've discovered 12 major groups of market participants that they're doing the fundamental analysis, they're doing technical and charting, and they got their computers. But the thing is, some of them are actually commercials using those commodities. Some of them are speculators involved in those commodities. And it's picking up on those kind of people. Your People are more important than what's in the soybean bin. If your soybean bins half empty, if they don't want to pay you for it, the price still doesn't have to go up. If it's half empty and they're scared to death of getting that from you, they're going to pay you a huge amount. I mean, it's it's that delicate of a situation. And this modeling can explain nearly 100% of all price fluctuation during the year. So uh, very proud of it. Worked that hard for 20-some years building this kind of modeling. And uh, it's it's the main, main thing, even though I love to get out the fundamentals and news and information, compare it and talk about it, um, that that what I call ex-fundamental, knowing what that demand side is doing that very few people know what they're doing. And I've worked for some of the commercials, so I've been behind the scenes so I can see that my original modeling was correct. I'm tapping in those kind of people running the show. Yep. So give it a chance, check it out. I think, I think people, uh, I think everyone will like it. Yep. Well, good stuff, Rich. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. <clears throat> All right, thank you. Great. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you find this podcast when I post it. Also, check out movingironllc.com for all the latest information about Moving Iron um, uh, Podcast, as well as the Moving Iron Summit coming up here September 1 through 3 in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, still, still have time to get signed up for that. So if you're interested in doing that, shoot me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. Also, check out the Global Ag Network and the great podcasters out there as well. Um, I guess with that, I am Casey Seymour with Rich Poston. Let's go move some iron, folks. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years, you'll find us here. Moving iron